Welcome to Cannabis Health Radio, a podcast where we share stories from people around the world who are using cannabis as medicine. The information is meant to raise awareness about the health benefits of cannabis, but should not be taken as medical advice. Now, here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. And here we are again with another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. When her son was knocked off his bike and fell over the barrier rail on the highway, he suffered life-threatening injuries and was not expected to live. But a mother's determination, along with cannabis oil, kept her son alive after doctors said there was nothing more they could do. And joining us to tell her son David's remarkable recovery story is Karen Ross Glazer of Arizona. Karen, thanks for doing this. When did your son's accident occur? And tell us what happened. Well, the accident occurred on May 9th, 2020. Thank you for having me, by the way. You're very welcome. Um, He was on his way home uh, on one of the Arizona freeways. And out here we have a a lot of uh, stacked freeways. They have like um, pylons, sort of like how they do in California. Mm -hmm. And, um, they have uh, a triple pipe stack freeway. It's, uh, the 6010 and he was on his way home on the top of the 60. And we still don't exactly know the details of what happened up there, but, um, they say that somehow the bike tire, uh, skid, he hit the sidewall and he went over the barrier he fell 165 feet oh. and um, broke every bone in his body, damaged every organ. Wow. How does how does one even survive a fall that far? Holy crap. Honestly, I attribute it to prayer, RSO, uh, my determination. Mm-hmm. And the love and the will of my own son, I, I don't know what else to attribute it to. Doctors have nothing to give me. We've seen, I can't tell you how many teams. Uh, we've seen everything. Oh, Lord, the list is nephrology, hematology, gastrology, uh, you know, um, neurosurgeons. Um, we've seen approximately seven different neurosurgeon teams. All of them have told us they've never seen anything like this. It's not taught in schools. It's not taught in the textbooks. Um, everything they know is that people don't survive this, period. So um, they have nothing to go on. They have no prognosis to give me. They have nothing. Uh, they have no idea how David survived all this. Even the surgeons that did the work can't tell me that they knew he was going to survive this. All of them thought he was going to pass. Um, Do you know, Karen when, his... Karen, when I was reading your story, I was just absolutely astounded by his injuries. You said his liver, gallbladder, spleen, pancreas, kidneys, heart, lungs, pituitary gland, adrenal glands, respiratory system, urinary system, neurological system, muscular, vascular, and skeletal systems, all severely damaged beyond medical knowledge. And yet your son still survived. Yes. I signed waivers four different times for them to remove all four of my son's limbs. 
They told me he would not be able to have his limbs. They they did not know how they would be able to save him, fix him. His elbows and knees were completely shattered. His bones surrounding the elbows and knees shattered. The the bone fractures and and the damage to his tibias alone, they said, should have killed him. They don't know how he survived it. Um, damage to the upper portion of the leg, the, the largest bone in our body is, is so severely damaging that most people die from a, an injury like that. He shattered both of his femurs um, and survived through it. I, I don't know, like I said, other than prayer of the Lord mm-hmm. and RSO, what I've been doing and his own determination, I never let him give up. That's one thing. Um, from the moment we got the call, and we received a call at like 4 a.m., I think it was, on the morning of May 9th, 2020. And my daughter answered the phone and they told me that my son was in a severe accident. And we needed to get to the hospital right away. They wouldn't give me any other information. We. How, how old was your son at that point? He had just turned 21. He had just three days prior made foreman at his employment. Hmm. Um, and, uh, when we got the call, we rushed to the hospital and I, I immediately on the way to the hospital, I couldn't drive. My daughter drove, um, and I was on the internet immediately asking for prayer, calling everybody I knew, asking everybody to pray. I didn't know what the extent of the damage was. I just knew I needed prayer. And so that's what I did. And we immediately had prayers going around the globe. Um, from there, I got to the hospital, and and it was a nightmare. Uh, COVID had just hit. Uh, we we didn't really even have closures at that time on on like mask mandations or anything like that. They had just went into effect. My son still hadn't even, you know, had to wear a mask for work. Um, so we got to the hospital, and the hospital was closed down. They weren't wanting to do anything, let anybody in, uh, COVID, they had just opened up for surgeries that morning. So, uh, we were outside for about 180 days, except for three times for end of life. I I was called in three different times, told me, uh, the first two times he wasn't going to make it through the night. Uh, the, the last time I was told he wasn't going to make it through the hour. Um, I was told that I could hold his hand for 20 minutes while he passed, but that there was nothing more that they could do. The doctors told me there just was no hope. And I looked at them and I told them, don't tell me that. Don't tell me there's no hope. You have no hope. You're the one with no hope. Don't tell me there is none. I have all the hope in the world. And um, he told me they had tried everything and I called him a liar and I told him, no, you hadn't. I said, you have not tried my son's medication. And they said, well, what is your son's medication? I said, my son's a legal medical marijuana patient in the state of Arizona, and he deserves to have his medication. And they said that, you know, laws, this, that, they had to review and convene and let me know if this would be allowed. And I told him, well, you're telling me he's going to pass in an hour. He doesn't have that time. And uh, they asked me, they said, well, what, what do you give him? And I said, RSO. And I said, oils and other things. I also use essential oils. I use a lot of things like that. And um, 
they asked me what it was and I explained to them that it was, uh, you know, basically the whole cannabis oil. It was natural plant. Um, and that it works for my son's nausea. It works for my son's pain, for his neuropathy, for things like that. Um, and they convened five different doctors in the hospital and they came back to my daughter and I and told us that they would allow us to do it. They wanted to know what it was, see it and know how much we were giving them and all that kind of stuff. So I, I pulled it out cause I had it on me. Um, I was a little afraid to pull it out cause I didn't know if they were going to trick me and try to say, wouldn't it be loud, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was nervous, but my daughter had a backup. And we had agreed on this before we went in that if they did this, that we were just going to do it, whether they allowed us to or not. And um, so anyways, I showed it and they allowed me and I I walked in the room and three of the doctors followed us and watched us give it to them. And I watched the doctor's mouths literally hit the floor when less than 20 minutes later, he started to stabilize. When you say he started to stabilize, what happened, Karen? And also, can I ask, how much did you give him? At that time, I gave him 0.5. Okay. Um, the doctor that I was talking to told me to give him 0.2 three times a day, every six to eight hours. And I wasn't getting in three to four times a day. I wasn't getting in once a day. The fact that I was getting in for end of life was my chance. So I made a judgment call to up it and to give them as much as I could at once, but not to go over what the day required. And so I decided to give them 0.5 because what the doctor told me to do would be a total of 0.6 throughout the day. And And, um, I squeezed it under his tongue and in his teeth because he was in a coma and he had a trach in his throat and he had, you know, breathing tube and all these different things going on and a feeding tube going down his nose. And so I I opened his mouth, even though it was wired shut, I could only squeeze in a little bit through the thing. So I just measured with the syringe and I just pushed it in there um, because his jaw was wired shut at the time too. So he started to improve in 20 minutes. What were those improvements that you saw? His blood pressure started stabilizing. His heart rate started stabilizing. He was all over the charts. His heart rate was going everywhere from 20 to like 180 beats per minute. He was all over the place. He was going from brachycardia to tachycardia. Um, his He was bottoming out blood pressure wise. He was really low. Um, I think at one point he had gotten to like he was over... I think it was like 70s or 90s over 30s. I, I could, don't quote me on that because I can't remember exactly, but it was low. Um, he had rapid head movements. Uh, they thought he was seizuring. They thought there was a lot of different things going on. Um, he was on 24-hour kidney dialysis. His kidneys had completely failed. Um, they told me he wasn't a candidate for anything like transplanting because his body was too damaged. Um, there, there was no way they were going to transplant multi-systems. His lungs were failing. He had five chest tubes. Um, 
He had three in the left, I believe, and two in the right. Uh, at one point, I think he even had five chest tubes on the left side, um, two in the top, two in the bottom, and one in the side. He had his organs outside of his body. All of his organs were in a pressure bag and were he was split all over his body, literally. Um, they did fascia wounds throughout every muscle. Every muscle was split open in three places all the way down the muscle. Um, he looked like an overcooked hot dog that had been left on way too long. Holy cow. His skin was ripped off of him and he needed skin grafts and had had skin grafts. He was in external stabilizers across his entire body. He had external arm stabilizers, chest, uh, uh, pelvis, and legs. Um, he had tubes coming out of his head, drain holes. They had done a craniopathy and his head was opened. Uh, his right temporal lobe was completely open and the brain swelling had reached pressures of over 92 pounds of pressure which our heads, I don't know if you're familiar with ICPs, uh, which is intracranial pressures, but ICPs are supposed to be under four. Oh, my um, God. If, if you have a four, you have a head trauma. Mm -hmm. um, a, a 20 normally kills people. My son's ICPs reached upwards of 92. Oh, my God. Um, They've never seen anything like it. They can't explain it. They had to reset every bone in his body. They literally told me they pieced him back together like a jigsaw puzzle. They had to suction the bone marrow out of his legs and put metal rods in place because the femur was shattered and they, the bone marrow was floating around the body. They had to suction that out. So he had a lot. I mean, his heart had failed on the table. Um, he had bled out completely bled out. They gave him blood. His heart started beating again on its own. They never used paddles. Um, so he had went through all this. And when they called me in friend of life and he was literally going haywire and everything was off the charts and he was already on 24 hour dialysis. His liver wasn't functioning. His adrenal glands weren't functioning. They said he had Addison's disease. Um, his pituitary gland was off the chart. His, uh, adrenal gland, or sorry, the uh, thyroid gland, um, his pancreas had stopped, the gallbladder had stopped, they had drains coming out of his gallbladder and his liver um, to remove bio that was building up. All this stuff was happening. And I could do nothing but pray and give him RSO. So that's what I did. And it was first his heart rate and his blood pressure started stabilizing. And they were shocked and they didn't know. And then they, they were like, well, he's stabilizing. Like, <laughs> you know, they still had him on the machines, uh, like for kidneys and all that. But they were like, at that point, questioning whether or not what to do, I guess. Um, I stayed for a little longer and he started getting a little better, started moving. Um, after that, the, the doctor's... I had to leave the building again. <laughs> we we weren't allowed to stay. I went back outside and then I started getting phone calls again. I do have many, many recordings on five different phones. We recorded every conversation we could with the doctors. Because of COVID, we were locked out so much. I have all the recordings. I just don't have them all in sequence. Mm -hmm. um, 
but the doctors called me and they said they they don't know what to tell me they he's getting better um his kidneys started functioning his liver started functioning uh things started happening that weren't happening before within three days they were able to take him off the two day di- or the 24-hour dialysis um he went to three-day dialysis and then within that time he went from three-day dialysis and I think it was about two to three weeks later he was completely off dialysis and his kidneys were functioning on his own. Wow. So, Karen, once they saw that that giving him that oil had made a difference, were you allowed to administer any more or was that the one and only time in the hospital? No. I had to fight for a couple weeks. I had to fight for the ability to get into the hospital. So I started fighting for more than just the right for the medication. I started fighting for the right to let me in. And I came up with, that's when we came up with let her in, um, the hashtag. And, you know, uh, I, I can't imagine having a child that ill and that critically injured and not be allowed in to even see him. Amen. That must have been absolute torture camping outside the hospital like that. I, I can't even begin to tell you what that was like. Um, the hospital probably hated me. I was the only person, and, and I know I've heard it from numerous doctors, numerous nurses, hospital staff, employees. They say that I'm inspiring, that our family has done more than they've ever seen anyone do. We, um, in COVID, I know there was a few families that did it, um, had to camp outside. But from day one, I refused to leave. I, I put up a tent. I stayed at the hospital. We slept in our car for the first couple of weeks. We, we weren't leaving the property. Um, I fought as much as I could to get in. I fought for the, my son's rights. I fought once they had him in a coma and all these things were going on. I fought for the fact that he was nonverbal, that I was fighting for guardianship. I went for guardianship so that I had the legal right to be his voice, to stand up for him, to be able to get inside, to be his eyes and ears and mouth. Um, It was hard. It's unbelievably hard. The amount of things that the hospitals out here do and try to prevent Um, And with the pandemic, it was just unbearable. But I I refused to give up. I refused to leave. I refused to to stop. And I I kept pressuring them. I kept fighting for his rights. I kept telling them this was inhumane, that this was not okay, that they that my son needed me. Um, From day one, we forced them to do phone calls. Um, At that time, they still kept saying they wouldn't do the video calls because he was so badly damaged. They wouldn't do videos. and so I fought for phone calls. I fought to be able to make sure he heard my voice. Uh, we never got on the phone and said, you know, son, it's okay. We know you're injured. We know this is it. We, ne- we never did that. Um, it was only my daughter and I, my youngest daughter and I, in all honesty. There, there was, I have four children and my mother, who is still alive at the time of this accident, um, My mother couldn't handle seeing my son like this and and sort of walked out. My oldest daughter, after the first couple months, uh, stopped calling and stopped coming around. She said that uh, she chooses not to live in this trauma. Mm -hmm. 
that if we chose it, that it was our choice and that she would tell her children that we had all passed, um, that she doesn't have family anymore. My oldest son said that he would rather rem remember his brother as he was. A lot of people gave up. A lot of people said it was impossible. A lot of people said it was not even capable of happening, that there was no chance of a miracle, um, so to speak. My daughter and I never gave up hope. My daughter and I, from the very beginning, felt it was going to be okay. When I dropped to my knees when I got to that hospital and I was told he was not, and that he had died on the operating table because he had bled out, and they asked me to give him blood, and I said, give him blood. And then they called me and said his heart started beating again on its own. I knew from that moment on, he wasn't giving up. He wasn't going to stop. And so I wasn't going to stop. And my daughter and I, I was on my knees in the parking lot, praying to God like I had never prayed before. I begged him to take me. I begged him to do whatever he felt he needed to do to save my son. That I would suffer through whatever consequence. And I felt a wave of reassurance come over me that I cannot explain other than through the Lord. And I felt something tell me to get up, to stand up, and to fight. That it wasn't going to be easy, but he was going to make it. And so I did. And it took me till May 22nd. The accident happened May 9th. May 22nd is when I got in for the last end of life and was able to give him the RSO. It took me a couple weeks after that to continue fighting to get the rights to get inside. But once I got the rights to get inside, they gave me the right to go inside for a couple hours per day. When I did, I snuck him RSO every single day. Every day. And because I couldn't get in three times a day, like the doctor said, mm -hmm. I changed the dose. He told me to give him 0.2 three times a day. So I gave him, I decided that would be 0.6 for an entire day. And I thought it might be too much and the doctors might notice him sort of slipping into sort of a sleepy state all the time when I was there. So I decided to cut it in half and give him 0.3 and go with 0.3 a day when I got in there. And so that's what I did. And my daughter and I stuck with the pack that whoever got in whichever day, one of us gave it to him. So we continued that until he got moved into a facility and we were no longer able to get in again and I had to fight again. But it's been a fight all along. I've had to fight for his bed, for his rights, for his food, for everything because there's been no expectations. So all along the way, there's been a lot of no hope. A lot of people saying this isn't possible, even when they've seen everything that's happened. Currently today, David breathes on his own without any assistance whatsoever. No oxygen, no help, no nothing. Mm -hmm. Currently today, David's kidneys function on their own. His liver functions on his own. His adrenal glands, his pituitary gland, his thyroid, everything is functioning on his own. His thyroid is a little off and he's on thyroid medication currently. And that is all. And then the oil and that's it. He beside for for things from the doctors like that kind of stuff right on, um they do have them on they had them on eight seizure medications i now have him have him down to a 
500 milligram low dose of Keppra twice a day along with the RSO. And that's all I have them for prevention of seizures. All the other eight medications are off. Um, we have him on the, we have him on iron, uh, folic acid, immunity boosts, probiotics, essential oils, things like oregano oil, basil, uh, rosemary, DDR prime, frankincense, myrrh, mm -hmm. things that most people don't think of. I have them on that. Karen, um, is, is he at home now or is he still in a facility? He is at home now. I, I got him home in April. What's his, what's his emotional state like? Actually, he's been suffering a little bit of PTSD symptoms and he has a little anxiety when it comes to going into the ambulances now. Mm -hmm. um, he, he is still nonverbal, but he is making sounds now. He has um, aloe skin, uh, something reskin, which is a placental skin. Um, he has a, uh, I, I think pig skin mm -hmm. and cadaver skin. So he has donation skin. Um, and all of his skin grafts are completely faded and blend with his skin tone. Karen, his scars are barely noticeable. Karen, I use THC so. on his entire body. Wow. Do you see I rub his scars, his muscles, everything with it? Do you see progress uh, with David's condition on a monthly basis, or is it just stabilized? No, we see it more on a daily basis. Um, little tiny things that you don't notice that we take for granted that you know are simple things like a swallow, mm -hmm. a cough, bringing up your own phlegm. Being able to sneeze, being able to do things on your own, move your limbs, respond to a command. Everything is changing daily. And there are little tiny minute things, but they change all the time. Um, like he just started swallowing heavy probably in the last month or so. Um because of the trach and, and having the stoma in his throat, it was very difficult. It was painful to swallow. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he couldn't swallow on his own. It was hard. Now he can. Um, he is bringing up his own phlegm. He's not needing to be suctioned like he used to be. He is clearing his own throat. He's not choking. He's stabilizing. He's no longer going through bradycardia and tachycardia all the time. Um, he's stabilizing and maintaining a steady heart rate throughout most of the day. Unless something happens where he's in severe pain or something goes on, then we'll see it, you know, bradycardia or something, or we'll see him go up or down, you know, or if he has an infection. Signs of infection or his heart rate will go down and he'll get a fever. Uh, signs of him being irritable is his heart rate will go up, you know. He'll tense, he'll strengthen, he'll uh, posture, what they call, pulling out. Most people in his condition, in his stage, are, I hate to say it this way, God, I, I, please don't take this the wrong way, but it's hard work. It is. Mm -hmm. And I don't 
fault to anybody, but it's very hard work and a lot of families don't do it. <coughs> because of that, we have a lot of families that and people that do go into our nursing homes and do our facilities, things like that. And no matter what people want to believe about nursing homes, yeah, they're ran to a, a minimum and, and they have guidelines to follow. And most of the time they adhere to that stuff. However, people in David's condition slip through the cracks a lot. If they can't speak up, if they can't hit a call button, if they can't do things for themselves all the time, they slip through the cracks more. They suffer abuse. They suffer neglect. They suffer lots of different things. Throughout COVID, I've even had one hospital misdiagnose him purposely with COVID just so they could put him in a COVID ward and try to kill him so they could get the money for COVID. Jesus. I'm not joking. No, That's I've a heard, God's honest heard, truth. Yeah. Karen, you said that David is still nonverbal. Uh, yes. Is, is he bedridden or do you get him up and in a wheelchair? And... He, he's currently bedridden because we don't have a chair to get him up. We are waiting for one to be made. Um, once one is made for him, we will be able to get him up. We are also still waiting for his crane, uh, his craniopathy to be done and for his skull piece to be put back in. Um, David is home with his skull piece still out. Mm. I fought to bring him home in this condition. Um, he was neglected in facilities. That's what I was speaking of. Mm -hmm. And like I said, one of the facilities even misdiagnosed him with COVID, even though we had three negative COVID tests and he had been isolated all along. They still said he had COVID because of a something they saw in his lung, which was actually a colonization of pseudomonas that we had been fighting since he was impaled by a screwdriver on the I-10 when he fell. And I told them that, but they wouldn't listen. They said that they could tell it was COVID and that I wasn't a doctor or a pulmonologist, so I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, and so they placed him in a COVID ward, even though he had three negative COVID tests in their hospital. And they did that deliberately because they knew. The government out here is giving stipends for every COVID patient that died in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So if they have a patient as critical as David, who has his immune system compromised now because his spleen was removed because it ruptured inside of his body when he hit the I-10. And if they could put him in a COVID ward and get him COVID and he died in a COVID ward, then he died of COVID. Karen, I should have asked you this when uh, when we first started, but uh, in the accident, David was on uh, was on a motorbike. Do I have Correct. A, yeah, and did he have a helmet? He did. Yeah, I'm just wondering if he didn't have a helmet, uh, he wouldn't be around now. No, definitely not. Yeah. Um, the helmets did save his life, definitely, but also the the doctors attribute it to David saving his own life. Um, sadly. He was going about 65 miles an hour on the, the US 60. Um, he was going around a curve, which was a, a 60 mile, you know, 60, 65 mile an hour curve. Um, it was late at night, it was dark, and it wasn't lit up. They don't know if there was something in the road or somebody ran him off the road, but something happened to the back tire and he was pushed into the sidewall. When he hit the sidewall, he obviously went over. The sidewall was not tall enough. I'm currently in the process of suing the state of Arizona over their road design, 
we found out that the road design was improperly done and that the road barrier was way too small. The curve was wrong. And my son should have never went over that barrier, but he did. And he fell 165 feet while going 65 miles an hour. They told me that he hit the ground with approximate pressures of over 800 pounds of pressure. Jesus. He hit on the impact side of the left with a blowout side or repercussion side of the right. Like an impact of a bomb going off. He protected his organs from the fall because he saw it coming. My son was into extreme sports. He was a motorcyclist. He did snowboarding, skiing. Mm -hmm. You know, he loved outdoor sports. He was big into, you know, that kind of stuff. He did parkour. And because of the parkour and stuff, he had, was very knowledgeable on jumps and lands and that kind of stuff. So thank God he had that knowledge because they said that he had almost three minutes while he was falling to figure out how to land. The, hundred, and the 165 foot the, fall took th three minutes? Because of his projection of the speed of how fast he was going and mm. he didn't fall straight down. Okay. He flew like Superman. He uh, flew out and over the wall. He was not directly below his bike. He was a long ways away. Do you know, Karen, of all the interviews we've done on Cannabis Health Radio, and you were episode 339, we've never had anyone, have we, Corey, that has dealt with such severe injuries as your son? And never. I, never. And I have to say that I think David... Well, you probably won't, in all honesty. I hate to interrupt, but <laughs> from what right. we found, and we've done our history, and doctors have even searched for it. We've been searching for it. We've only found eight people in history, in the Guinness Book of World Records and things like that. We've only found eight people in history, medical history, that has been documented with a fall like this. And we've only found one of those eight people... David being one of the eight, by the way, mm -hmm. we only found one of those that had comparable injuries to David. Yeah, it's and I think he's alive because uh, I think he wants to be alive. But I think he is alive because of his mother and his sister's determination to keep him alive. And uh, I think your love for your son and your daughter's love for her brother are just unbelievably uh, heartwarming, and uh, we have to wish you all the best because I think you've gone through a terrible journey, specifically dealing with COVID, not being able to get into the hospital, three times being told end of life, and I can't imagine what that has done to your emotional state. It's just un unbelievable. Well, it has been a difficult road, I'll tell you, and I'm not... Not saying that I'm not without days of breaking. <laughs> I definitely have been. But um, my belief in the Lord, my belief in the power of this plant. Um, I, I've been a medical patient for many years myself. Uh, in 2002, I was trampled. Um, August 15th of 2000, uh, I, I got trampled. And had surgery. Well, actually, the surgery was 2002. My, I got trampled August 15th of 2000. And I was at a political rally here in the U.S. And, and uh, I suffered many injuries. And I ended up in a wheelchair and was told that I was going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. 
and I was on a lot of medications that kept me down. Doctors had me on probably 20 different medications, and I couldn't live that way. I turned to cannabis long before cannabis was legal in this country um, because I knew of the power of the plant. And it helped me. It helped my husband. It helped us get through things. My husband was a juvenile diabetic who had chronic ulcers. It helped my husband maintain his, his eating patterns and, and, you know, try to stay healthy and maintain his sugars. We also did things like, you know, prickly pear juice and, you know, uh, goba and just all different kinds of things. Like I said, I've always researched the natural herb, the natural way, because I believe in fixing a problem from the base, not covering it up with a medication like doctors do today and making more problems. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the biggest thing that with today's society, especially with doctors in the U.S., I don't know how Canada is right now. I know that their systems seem to be a lot better than ours. I have family still there, and God, I, I wish we could come back. They keep telling me, come back home, <laughs> you know. Um, well, where, whereabouts in Canada? Whereabouts in Canada is your family? I have family um, in, in uh, Stony Point, Ontario, oh, Tilbury, okay. Ontario, yeah. and I also have some in Alberta. Um, so I have them scattered around, but um, I, I grew up out there. You know, I went to school out there. I mm-hmm. I, I I love my home. You know, but I, I came out here in the uh, the eighties, and. Um, yeah, you know, I've lived my life out here. I, I'm good. I, I always love going back and forth. But um, with David's situation now, it's been really hard, you know, to even, I, I can't bring him. You know, I can't go. So yeah. we've been stuck. And with COVID, family hasn't been able to travel here. It's been hard with borders closed and all the different things going on. Half my family's, you know, still working remotely from home. Karen, it was so, it was wonderful of you to do this, uh, and it's so very heartwarming to hear what you've done for your son. And I want to thank you for sharing your story with us and our listeners around the world. And we wish you and David all the best in the future. Thank you. I appreciate that. I always yeah. ask for prayers for everybody. Pray for David. Um, we do have our our. You know, page on Facebook, it's uh, David Strong, and uh, it's a, a group page. We do a lot of communications through there. Um, love to have, you know, people join us, and, and we post updates, what's going on. And, um, you know, we've gotten to the point where we do updates about once a week now, mm-hmm. and I do refreshers and stuff. But, you know, in the beginning, of course, our, our posts were daily, you know, daily updates. Um but, you know, we're now, like, in month 22, we're at, oh, I think we're at day 670. And, um, you know, we're, we're doing good. I mean, I know it's, it, it's a lot. I don't expect it to happen. And, you know, I never expected it to happen overnight. And that's the one thing that I, I would like to get across to people and families. Um, I know that not everybody has the ability to do this. I do. I, it's not something everybody can handle. But in all actuality, you have to listen to the person. And sometimes accidents like this, the person isn't able to go through. And the person, you know, it's better for them to pass. I understand that. But there's also times when the person wants to fight for life. And, and when they choose to do that and you can see them doing that, you have to fight for them. Um, and the thing is, is 
yes, it would have killed me to lose my son. This ordeal is killing me. This this trauma, this this hassle, this this everything is has been a road that I can't even explain to most people. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't give it up for the world because I know he's fighting and I know he wants this and I know that he's going to be better and I I fully believe in my heart that he will heal and he is going to heal to tell the world not only his story and what has helped him and what has gone through, but to, to be able to show people to have faith, to have belief that there is more, you know, um, I do believe that fully. And I I've seen it with the fight that we've gone through. And I, I know that every one of us has things that we have to face in our life. And I think that each of us are given stepping stones that we learn from and we, we grow with. And myself, a lot of those stepping stones were, I was married to a husband that was a juvenile diabetic. I took care of diabetic ulcers. So I dealt with wounds. It wasn't so strange to see something like that. My father was a a motorcycle accident. Also in 2003, my, my father was a frontal lobe damage. He lost 20 years of his life and, and regressed to remembering coming out of Vietnam. Um, I helped my father and took care of him on and off for 18 years after his accident. But it took us eight years till he was able to live on his own. It took us 12 and he was able to have a driver's license again and could fully drive on his own without a map. Karen, but after 12 years, he was able to do it. So I know my son can too, and I don't give up. It's yeah. going to be a long road, but it's worth it. Thank you. I know I've talked over my time. and No, I, I that's, uh, that's fine. You've got a remarkable story, and you are a remarkable woman. And uh, I think people around the world will appreciate your story, and we wish you all the best, and we wish David uh, a heartfelt recovery, and we hope that happens very soon. Thank you, Karen. Uh, very much appreciated. Thank Thank you you. very, very much, Karen. And thank Um, you for doing what you do and getting the word out there, because I'll tell you, the power of this plant is phenomenal. This is a God-given plant, and it's natural, and people need to have access to this across the globe. It's not something just for your country or mine. It's it's something that needs to be accessible to everyone. This is a miracle. This is, this is a medication that can heal so many. It cures cancer. It helps with seizures. It helps with children that are suffering through so many things. It helps with broken bones, refixing organs, rejuvenating things that, and cells that people didn't think were possible. This medication needs to be accessible to the world. You're right. Thanks, Karen. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Karen. Well, what a remarkable story, and we appreciate Karen telling her story and sharing it uh, with listeners around the world. We'd also like to thank our listeners for supporting us and sharing our podcasts with others who would benefit from healing, hearing these amazing testimonials about the healing power of cannabis. And if you'd like to support us, as I've always said, there are a couple of ways you can do it. You can become a monthly supporter for as little as $5 a month on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. We're very grateful for your support, and thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week with another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks for listening to Cannabis Health Radio. For more information and to search previous podcasts, visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com Subscribe so you don't miss new episodes.
and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This podcast is made possible by donations from our listeners. If you found the information helpful, please consider making a donation in any amount through our website. You can also help us share our message by leaving a review on your podcast listening platform. We are very grateful for your support. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Canachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.